This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen along with you. Pelvic floor dysfunction. It's a common problem among women and it's strongly linked to both childbirth and to aging. It can cause many symptoms and it can have some troubling consequences. So here to help us understand what these are and what can be done about them is Dr. Natasha Ginsberg. She's Assistant Professor of Urology and the Director of Female Pelvic Medicine and Surgery. Welcome, Dr. Ginsberg. Thanks for coming in. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's begin by helping us understand what we mean when we talk about the pelvic floor. What is that? It's, the pelvic floor is actually a, a, a difficult concept, I think, for a lot of people to understand. But it's basically the hammock that kind of holds all your organs. And men have a pelvic floor and women have a pelvic floor. But particularly for women, it's the hammock that holds the bladder, the vagina, and the rectum kind of in position, kind of at the bottom part of your of your abdomen. And that hammock is comprised of musculature? I mean, is it basically muscles that create that support? Yeah, there there are a few different levels of muscles, and there's also a connective tissue, which is called fascia, which is a thick, strong, kind of rope-like tissue that, that keeps everything in position and, and protects your organs um, from gravity, ultimately. So basically, why is it important? I mean, what what happens when this when something goes wrong with it? Mm-hmm. So the, the pelvic floor uh, is a complex structure, and the purpose of it is, one, to kind of keep everything in place, but also needs to be able to relax and to tighten in order to permit sort of normal activities. And that includes things like voiding and defecation. It needs to relax in order to be able to have babies. It needs to tighten in order to be able to prevent urine or stool from coming out. When and it's not supposed to. Exactly, exactly. And so um, it's it has to work in relation with your other muscles and with the brain and with the nerves in order to keep everything in place. And meanwhile, it also is fighting gravity most of the time because we're upright, um, standing or sitting. And so there are muscles there that have to always be tonically contracted in order to keep things in position. So when we talk about pelvic floor disorders, that sounds like it could be a very large category. What are the kinds of problems that we're talking about? It is, it is. And there are a lot of different things that can go wrong with the pelvic floor. Um, In general, when we talk about disorders, we talk about things that have to do with urination. So often that's related to something like urinary incontinence or the inability to hold urine. It can be related to prolapse of the organs through the vagina, and that can be either the bladder or the uterus or the rectum. When you say prolapse, explain that a bit more. So that's essentially when those fascia, that tight ligament, when it becomes weak, the organs can actually fall forward or um, down through the vagina. So the vagina almost turns itself inside out because the organs are kind of falling through. It's essentially a hernia of the pelvic floor. Mm-hmm. And are there others as well? You were starting to mention, and I then, interrupted you. Oh no, the other um, other disorders can be loss of stool and the inability to retain stool or even the inability to hold in uh, flatulence. And then finally, we oftentimes deal with people who have pain or trouble with the relaxation of their pelvic floor. Sort of the opposite problem of having things fall through is the problem of being too tight. Interesting. So who basically is most at risk? I, I alluded to this in my introduction, that it's often associated with childbirth or with increased age. Tell us a bit more about that. Explain that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, depending on the type of pelvic floor disorder, there are different risk factors. Overall, we do know that things kind of worsen with age. So rates of urinary incontinence increase with age. The risk of prolapse or the organs kind of falling through worsen with age. Um, The other risk factors are things like uh, obesity, 
smoking is a big risk factor, as well as genetics and sort of a familial predisposition. There's certain medical problems that can predispose you to this, but I would say probably the number one inciting factor is childbirth. So the, just from having gone through childbirth, and I have had that experience, mm-hmm. all of the pressure of carrying the pregnancy and then delivering a, a child vaginally probably stretches things quite a bit. Exactly, exactly. And and we find that um, vaginal deliveries, even, even more so than cesarean sections, but both do contribute to the laxity and tearing of those the muscles and that fascia. And when they become weak, it's much more likely that things start to shift around and move, and then you're at higher risk for some of these disorders. So how do you know, I mean, you alluded to what the nature of some of them are. What are some of the symptoms? I mean, is it do you feel pain quite often, or is it mostly like loss of the ability to control certain things? It can be either, it can be both. So when we talk about urinary incontinence, that's the loss of urine when you don't mean to. So when the urine is coming out, whether it happens when you're coughing or sneezing or exercising, or sometimes it may come out when you feel like you have to go and you're walking to the bathroom and you just can't quite make it in time, that would be a sign of urinary incontinence. In terms of the prolapse or the organs falling through, sometimes people refer to that as a dropped bladder. And usually women will feel a pressure or a bulge or something doesn't feel quite right inside the vagina. They may have pain with intercourse. And then with fecal incontinence, loss of stool, same kind of thing. It's uh, the inability to retain the stool and to, to go when you want to and then or the stool comes out when it's not supposed to, when it's unexpected. Are there also elements of, does constipation play a role too? In other words, can you have the exact opposite of what we were just talking about, which is you know, loss of control. Absolutely, absolutely. And and what's complicated about the pelvic floor is that we have a number of different organs there and they all work inter- interrelatedly. So constipation can actually contrib- can contribute to urinary incontinence. Hmm. The pelvic floor being too tight can contribute to constipation, so the inability to relax and to allow the stool c- to come out. Um, and pelvic organ prolapse, so if things have kind of fallen forward, can contribute to both constipation and also the inability to urinate, to be able to pass your urine. So they're really all interrelated in some way, but largely it's, it's, it sounds like it's mostly an environmental or an aging. As you said, there are some potential family history tendencies toward it, but it's not something where there's something mal, some real malfunction in the body. No, that no. is the source of it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we we know that this is something that can happen with age. Incontinence can happen at any age, but it definitely increases. And things like prolapse, pelvic organ prolapse are more likely to happen as you get older. Now, it's not something that's a foregone conclusion. Just because you're older doesn't mean you will have incontinence or prolapse, but we do know that people who are older are more likely to have those issues. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with urologist Dr. Natasha Ginsberg. We're talking about pelvic floor dysfunction. So briefly, how is it diagnosed? In other words, how do you determine? I mean, you, you obviously have the symptoms, and then you know something is wrong, but how do you actually diagnose the nature of the problem or what's causing it specifically? Yeah. You know, the most basic technique is just like any physician is a, is a detailed history, understanding what's been going on and what causes things, what are the triggers, and then a physical exam. And so when you come to my office for one of these symptoms, part of the physical exam will include a pelvic exam to get a good sense of what is going on with those muscles and the fascia. Can we sense a weakness? Can we see things falling down? Can we see the leakage of urine? 
And then there are sort of more involved testing that kind of look at the function of the bladder or the function of the pelvic floor muscles. Sometimes we have to look inside the bladder with the camera. Those things may or may not be necessary, sort of depending on what we find on physical exam. So once you've, you've determined that someone does have pelvic floor dysfunction in some way, leading to all of these, you know, several problems, what treatment options are available for people? For example, for something like inc- stress incontinence, yeah, which I, is basically, as you mentioned, coughing, sneezing, that kind of thing. What, exactly. What are, the, what are the primary treatments and ones that are most effective? So I think what's really great about the treatments that we have pretty much across the board for our pelvic floor disorders is that we can move from things that are less invasive, that are easier to do, to things that are more invasive. And so in terms of incontinence, whether it's stress incontinence or urge incontinence, we can often start with things like changing around your behaviors, changing around the foods and the drinks that you put in your body because they can affect the way the bladder functions. We can also do pelvic floor exercises and that um, commonly is referred to as Kegels. Now I would say that many women are doing their Kegels incorrectly. And so we can go through teaching on how to appropriately do the Kegels. And then we have a great group of physical therapists here that are specialized in pelvic floor work and can really help women to focus on their muscles and to really get a good sense of what they're doing and to help them improve the way they're exercising their pelvic floor. So if in fact someone's motivated to do so, is can that really reverse their symptoms and I mean even at let's say a more advanced age can you really you know if let's say you've let yourself go so to speak (laughs) you know uh, for many 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 years I mean can you start to exercise and see a change absolutely absolutely and so I think a lot of women are scared to come to a urologist one because maybe they're embarrassed uh, or this is such a sensitive topic but the other fear is that they think, oh, I'm going to have to have surgery to fix this. And that's absolutely not the case. Now, we know that the earlier we start with sort of the muscle training, just like any kind of exercise, the better it'll be in the long run. But there's always ways to increase the muscle that you have and to help with some of the problems that are going on. How about techniques that are um, more kind of um, complementary, like something like biofeedback or something of that nature? Does that play a role and is it successful? Yeah. So, you know, what we generally find is that we start with sort of the least, less invasive types of things like the changes in your diet, potentially doing exercises, physical therapy, adjuncts to physical therapy are biofeedback. So what that is, is where when you're doing the exercises, you're, um, there is a machine that actually measures how well you're contracting your muscles. You can see it on a TV screen or a computer screen. So you can really get direct feedback about what your body is doing. And then, you know, we try these things for a while, and many people have good success with those. And if that's not working, then we move on to either things like medications, other therapies. And then if those still aren't working, then we would talk about surgical options. So let's back up a minute. When you talk about medications, what kinds of medications are usually recommended? Yeah. So do, and do they have potential side effects, for yeah, example? Yeah, of course. So. Uh, all medications have some side effect. Unfortunately, we don't have one that's perfect that works without having any side effects. And it depends on the specific pelvic floor disorder, what type of medication is appropriate. For things like urge incontinence, which is that leakage of urine when you're running to the bathroom and you don't make it, we have a series of medications that can help to relax the bladder so the bladder stretches a little bit more, is able to hold a little bit more urine so that you're not running as frequently. 
in terms of things like uh, fecal incontinence and inability to, to hold the stool in. There's certain types of bulking agents or uh, basically things to harden up the stool so that it doesn't come out quite as easily. When we talk about things like stress incontinence, there are less medications that are helpful with that. So that's that leakage when you cough or sneeze. And that's where the Kegels exactly, exactly. play a stronger role. So are there, do relaxation techniques play a role here? You were talking about that. Just to, I don't want to run out of time, but help us with understanding yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. So for the people whose pelvic floors are too tight, relaxation techniques and, again, physical therapy are really excellent. And, we, again, we have medications that can help be an adjunct to those things. And some people whose pelvic floors are very tight have a problem with chronic pelvic pain. Um, and they may also have a problem with leakage of urine because if their pelvic muscles are too tight, when it's time to have to go, they can't tighten anymore. So what they need to do is learn to relax the pelvic floor so that they have that give and stretch and, and to be able to tighten when the time is, is nigh. Very interesting. So let's get to surgery because clearly you said that is kind of your last resort, but what what kinds of procedures do you do, and, and are they in very highly invasive? Is they minimally invasive? Tell us a little bit, very little bit of time. Okay, so mostly I try to focus on minimally invasive options for patients. Depending on what their pelvic floor disorder, there are different surgical options. Um, in general, in terms of stress incontinence, that can be a procedure that it's usually a outpatient procedure, you come in the morning, go home the same day. And that would either help to strengthen that lost fascia that was now weakened after childbirth, or to try to bulk the urethra in order to prevent the urine from kind of leaking out. When we talk about prolapse, it's basically surgery to kind of pull things back up and put them back in the position where they belong. So what's the prognosis, basically, when someone's been treated, either with some of these other diseases or uh, other techniques or through surgery? Yeah, so people have very good outcomes. You know, depending on where they start, uh, their outcomes, they can have improvement anywhere from 50 to we have almost 100% success rates with certain types of um, modalities. What? But it very much depends on the individual and their motivation and what we're able to do for them. Well, very helpful, very interesting information. Thanks so much for coming in. My guest has been Dr. Natasha Ginsberg, Assistant Professor of Urology, specializing in adult urology, general female urologic health, and reconstructive urology. Um, I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air.